Welcome to episode 17 of Super Entertainment Presents the Telgen Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignol Network, coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. Uh, joining me, uh-oh, I just lost my nose. Joining me from Studio B is James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions, and from uh, Studio C is Chris Nigro, uh, CEO of Wild, Pre- uh, Wild Hunt Press. Sorry, if I don't read it in front of me, I am totally screwed up. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know you guys' names. Uh, and this guy who can't uh, remember things is Robert Ronsky Jr., author of Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. We are the TVCU crew, and thankfully I have my notes in front of me. Uh, Ivan Shabosky was here, but uh, he got called to his real job, so he got he had to leave us, unfortunately. Um, yeah, get ghost to bust. What's that? Yes, he had ghosts to bust. Yes, he had ghosts to bust. Actually, he was dressed as a reanimator, so he probably had something even far more nefarious <laughs> to do. He the test. So anyways, the TVC crew uh, are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots to official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the television crossover universe. Uh, so welcome, guys. Uh, thanks for putting up with my really terrible intro there. Hey, you put up with my puns every week. Yeah. I, I was telling somebody today, um, um, the, these little, these little, um, um, slip ups are, are, are proof that we don't edit out our interviews or anything like that. <laughs> so, um, let's, let's go to announcements and shameless plugging. Um, James, we'll start with you. What do you got for us? Okay. Well, just yesterday, on April Fool's Day, released Dead West, West of Pale, which is the first volume in the new Dead West series. It's a horror western where these two agents of a monster hunting organization go around the Wild West in the 1870s. In the first book, they encounter witches, German water spirits, and other assorted horrible things. So it's a really fun series. We've been working with the author, J. Patrick Allen, for a while now. He was one of the authors who was in From the Dragon Lord's Library, Volume 1. And he did this story, Dragonfly Shadow, which was sort of a cold open pilot for the series to see if anyone would actually be interested in publishing more of it. And of course, once we read it, we were like, of course, give us more. Here is a contract. And it's been a successful story. Actually, I don't know who did it, but it was nominated for the Pulp Arc New Pulp Awards 2016, like a lot of our guests have been. His Mm. story was one of the big short story nominations. So we're just waiting to see if he actually won that. I believe they're announcing it in July. Okay. Um, I'm also going to reiterate that Hannah Lackoff's The Science of Detection novella is still available, and you guys should all get it. In fact, we recently got the first review on it, and it was called, if I can figure out where I wrote it down, but actually the reviews so far have been extremely complimentary because it's a very unusual story. Holmes is only in it for a little bit. Instead, it's seeking to explain the motivations of the victims and the killer and look at them in much more detail than Watson could have ever told us, which is one of my favorite things about Hannah Lackoff's writing. She always finds these new, fresh angles to look at things from Mm. and examine them from alternate means. But I really loved this particular quote from the first review that came in. If it will let me. In any event, while a somewhat unusual entry in the realm of Holmes pastiche, this story is certainly a worthy one. So, and then I will plug with something that I'm not involved with, which is the DC comic series Superman American Alien. It's the antidote to Batman versus Superman. <laughs> Superman is hopeful. But the best thing is, it's not this sort of all star Superman hopefulness. It's a realistic, it's basically a take that against Man of Steel, where it wants to be even more realistic, even more serious, but Clark Kent is still recognizably. Clark Kent. And it's just this really great series. Every single issue is a standalone episode, and it starts with Clark Kent accidentally figuring out he can fly after he has a nightmare, and Martha Kent trying desperately to pull him to the ground by his foot. And up they keep going. 
And also, I'll leave you with this one last teaser. Superman's first costume is one he accidentally stole from Batman. Okay. Which hopefully is reason enough to pick it up. Now, that's all I've got. All right. How about you, Chris? Well, my plugs are going to be more along the lines of reminders again. Um, Wild Hunt Press is going to attempt to publish six things at once so that I am not, you know, I do not come off as a one-trick pony. And I know that's not something writers should do nowadays is just publish one thing and then advertise that one thing to death. Emphasis on the word death. So I'm going to try to get my novella, Replicant, along with a, a series of short stories featuring Scytharn, my Martian warrior on Earth, along with the Centurion novel and the Moonstalker novel, those two which will be part of the superhero universe I'm building, along with at least one or two other things, and I'm going to try to get them up hopefully by the early summer of this year. Wish me luck. And All luck. Thank you. And lastly, I will agree with James on uh, Superman, America, American Alien. And I will simply add, if James will agree with me on this, we have a hopeful Superman, despite the fact that the world around him is very somber and negative. He this stays- is very worth pointing out. It is yeah. even darker than Zack Snyder's world. Yes, but he's but Superman is yeah. Superman. Yes, which proves he does not need a fun, optimistic world around him to be who he is. That is an excellent point. Thank you. Cool. Um, and will Dorian Gray be one of your first six releases? I do not believe so. Um, that's going to be hopefully one of my first anthologies, but... That's most likely going to be a later release. Noted. Okay. Um, I only have to say that um, uh, our show was saved by the United States Army, um, <laughs> though that wasn't their intention. Um, you, usually my son comes to visit me in the summertime, and uh, the Army decided to move my, my um, ex-wife and my son again this summer, so... The money going to, usually going to his visit and the plane fare and stuff, got diverted to the show. So uh, <laughs> the show will go on uh, because of uh, because of an unfortunate circumstance, but at least there, there is a little silver lining to it. And and uh, he's actually moving closer to me, so it's 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 still a kind of a, a, a kind of a cool thing. Um, yeah. 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 So um, yeah. So but. Just, just to let people know, though, um, um, if people want to um, still fund the show, um, because you know um, I am using like my grocery money to pay for the show and stuff, <laughs> that um, um, we have a Patreon account and our, and you can go to our website and and see how you can donate and uh, um, and there are rewards. There are there are rewards even for as low as five dollars. Um, there are rewards. Um, you know, and if, if you can't afford to pay, which, you know, a lot of people, their money is tight as well, you know, just sharing it or sharing the podcast, sharing the website, um, is very helpful as well. Um, you know, and we, we, we appreciate all the support we've had both financially and otherwise, um, thus far. Um, and I also wanted to to plug, um, the website has had some new blog posts as well as some updated blog posts, and uh, um, I'm going to be taking a break of a few weeks from doing any more blog stuff because I really want to uh, write more books, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I need to get cracking on that um, because and I've, yeah. So on that front, I just need to listen to the crimson peaks commentary track and then my guillermo del toro blog will finally premiere okay cool and and ivan's going to be posting an update to his ivan blog uh in a couple days um as well and yeah but uh yeah i gotta i gotta work on the book so um i won't be be updating i've updated a bunch of stuff i mean i've done a bunch of stuff lately on the blog but um you know writing multiple projects at once sometimes you got to do one at a time uh in order to get something done 
Um, and oh, I just and I just wanted to plug. Uh, um, it's too late by the time this is recording for anybody to attend this year. But um, every year there's a um, convention in my backyard, like almost literally uh, at Smith College, um, is like five minute walking distance from my home, and um, and it's it's a really small con. Um, it's about women in fantasy, women in science fiction, and uh, uh, but it's a lot of fun and it's a really cheap price. I think it's like only ten or fifteen bucks to get in, um, and you know for you know uh, when when Janet Hetherington was on, we were talking about how smaller conventions um, are nicer sometimes than the bigger conventions, and this is a really nice small convention that runs annually. It's called Conbust, um, so you know it's it's going to be over by the time you. Uh, you hear this, but uh, you know I would suggest checking it out for next year. Um, and speaking, since everybody else is talking about optimistic Superman, um, I just heard some spoilers, which I'm not going to repeat uh, from Batman v Superman. That makes me optimistic um, about the future of of the movies. Um, but also, Supergirl is like the optimistic Superman that we've been dying for. <laughs> really uh supergirl is like such an upbeat optimistic show and um i haven't seen the crossover yet but i've heard good things about the crossover it's the single best episode of supergirl by yeah, far yeah and ivan just said that too that you know he um was really impressed with it and and i've heard so many people impressed with it and also um action comics is about to change to being a, a pre-flashpoint series again um, yeah, I'm really curious about how they're going to handle making most of their Superman line about the post-crisis Superman. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, um, you know they they open the door that uh, you know that you know they can print stuff from any continuity, and uh, that excites me because uh, you know the post-crisis Superman was a little bit more realistic, a little bit more serious, but he was still Superman. You know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I'm really I'm especially pleased. glad since they're getting one of the better writers from that period to be him to be the main writer for their line. Yeah. So one thing, James, you should have mentioned about Supergirl that I really want to point out. It has John Jones. How cool is that? That's right. And it had the Red Tornado. So the first time, the first time in live action. That. Yes, and, and uh, this wasn't the first time we got John Jones in live action, but we got a better version of him than the one we got in Smallville. Yeah. And I think his character has done very well. And many villains who get neglected from, from other Superman adaptations have shown up, uh, which I'm impressed with, because they're also done well. So, anyways, uh, we are we are recording a little late, and we have... Um, um, somebody from across the ocean waiting to come on the show. Uh, so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to have Murray Ewing with us. And we'll be right back. Okay, we are back. And James, would you like to introduce our guest? It would be my pleasure. In the few short months you've thrilled to the Television Crossover Universe podcast, you've listened, you've listened to novelists, playwrights, directors, and comic book creators talk about their work. This week, we expand our literary horizons that much more by sitting down with Murray Ewing, poet. His website is a wonderland of poems, fiction, and music, but we're here to start a discussion with him about just that, Wonderland. One of his poems, and one of my favorite things I've ever found online, is Alice at Riley, which gets which sets everyone's favorite Alice on Cthulhu's home island in a charming recreation of Lewis Carroll's poetic style. So let's start here. Murray, why Alice? Why Lovecraft? Why together? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for that lovely introduction. That was, that was very nice. Um, really, this was just a silly idea I had. <laughs> and I only started writing it because I happened to be near my computer at the time. And I thought, oh, just a couple of lines. Like I came up with the first couple of lines to this poem, and I thought, Alice in Wonderland mixed with Lovecraft. That's got to be good for, you know, a couple of lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not realising that it would then turn into this, this huge long poem, which it actually did. Um, so it wasn't really a conscious decision. <laughs> you know, although I love Lovecraft, um, 
I sort of um, like Alice in Wonderland. It's not as much of a thing with me as Lovecraft, but um, it, it was just the clash of two, to my mind, complete opposites, really, I think. Um, okay. One of my favorite parts of the poem, though, is when the Cheshire cat annoys Cthulhu into going back to sleep. What inspired <laughs> that in particular? <laughs> um, uh, well... Probably the practical the practical answer to that is I was trying to find a way to end the poem. <laughs> um, uh, well, one thing I did is I, st- after having just the beginning idea, I thought um, I started, it just seemed to generate so many lots of different um, additional ideas that it got to the point where I had this, all these things I was trying to cram into the poem and I had no idea how to end it. <laughs> um, but one of the, one idea, which I didn't really do as much as I could have, was um, trying to work out how each character in in uh, Alice in Wonderland mapped onto a character in H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and the only one that really came across uh, to my mind was the Cheshire Cat, who seems to be this sort of this um, numinous floating creature who um, who has unspecified powers. Could be um, Azath, Azathoth in um, uh, Lovecraft, um, and so I thought he's the only one who can tell Cthulhu to go to bed. Surely. <laughs> what other? Did you have any other characters mapped out? That's a really interesting idea. Like how they are similar. Um, no, because at that point I was realizing that every idea I put into the poem the poem just got longer and longer. <laughs> and it was already... Um, I don't know if you've ever tried writing um, rhymed poetry like this, but if you want to do just a simple statement, you've got to come up with four lines that rhyme. Right. <laughs> and sometimes that spreads on to another, another idea, and you think, I've got to fit this in. And when you're writing a prose story, you can just do that in a sentence. But in a poem, suddenly you find yourself having to... Right. Oh, I've just got to write another verse to fit in this idea so that that fits in with that. And really, towards the end, it was just like trying to bend a crowbar just to get these last few verses in, you know. <laughs> um, so at one point, I told myself to stop having ideas. <laughs> you do some of your best work, Murray, um, spontaneously, like rather than sit down and plan a poem, is that sometimes you just sit down and maybe you're listening to a certain song or et cetera, et cetera, and then just ideas just hit you? Yeah. And in fact, that's what makes it difficult because <laughs> I know, like with this, it's just a couple of lines popped into my head, and that doesn't actually happen that often. <laughs> Particularly, And then sometimes it'll, it'll be just two lines and that's it, and I think I can't make a poem out of two lines. Um... It really is something that either catches fire or it doesn't. I don't know. I haven't worked out the formula for it, which is quite frustrating when I want to, you know, I think, oh, I want to write another poem. <laughs> you know. I'm glad you got a hold um, Inferno out of this one. <laughs> it did seem like that. <laughs> yeah, where did you get your portrayal of Lovecraft? I'm used to authors presenting him as this very dour unemotional person and yours is very much more like the real Lovecraft very frantic almost Bertie Wooster like in his chaos <laughs> yeah well I've read a lot about Lovecraft I mean I've, I've read um, at the time I'd read um, two biographies I don't know if you know about um, the biographies of Lovecraft there's one by L. Sprague de Camp mm-hmm. which was quite down on him you know it criticised him for just about every aspect of his personality <laughs> And then there was S.D. Joshi's, and I've read, you know, some of his letters and the stories. And so you get to know him quite well, really. Or you think you do. I mean, who knows what he'd actually be like. Uh, But when I was writing the poem, and I find that as soon as you bring on a character in in a story or a poem, whatever plans you've got for them, when they actually appear on, not on screen, but, you know, on the page... I will start feeling a lot more sympathetic towards them, you know, and you want to explore, you know, you don't want them to just be a a flat, you know, a flat yeah. caricature. And uh, Lovecraft, for all his flaws, and I'm sure he's got, well, we know he's got them, um, he's definitely an interesting character, isn't he? <laughs> yes. Rob, I know you had some questions. 
Yeah, um, switching switching gears. Uh, so, what we invited you on almost c- completely because of the Alice story, uh, but that, <laughs> but then it occurred to me that maybe I should research uh, what else you do, and I was really impressed. Um, so, so I, I found I found another poem of yours, "My Vampire Bride." Um, oh yes, yeah, uh, which which you compare to uh, both Poe and Hammer Horror, um, and I yeah. and I could see that, though I saw more Poe in it uh, for yeah. for sure. Um, so I, I wanted to ask if if either Poe or Hammer were influential to you as a writer. Um, definitely Poe, because I mean, I haven't read enough poetry really <laughs> to call myself a poet. I think. Mm. But I definitely read Poe. I think he's he's really easy to read. Yeah, you know, particularly something like The Raven. It's so it's so um metrical and everything is in you know, it's it's um it rhymes. That's something I like about poetry, I must say. Um and it's very rhythmical. Um I think Poe is an excellent poet. He's just on, on my level. Um I think I don't really get into modern poetry, you know. Uh, stuff which doesn't rhyme. I can't. I certainly can't write it. I don't think. Um, I need that rhyming. And Poe Poe is definitely um, uh, someone who does that brilliantly. Well, Murray, I loved the Vampire Bride, and what it really evoked evoked in me as a fan of Poe's writing, it really made me think of Annabelle Lee, which was one of Poe's mm. greatest and tragic love poems. And yeah. we know he was talking about his wife, who he lost to tuberculosis, and here. Losing a wife to vampirism or, or a, a bride to be to vampirism. That was pretty incredible. And I'm just wondering if Annabelle might have been one of your inspirations. You know, it could have been. Um, you never know what gets dredged up, you know. Um, but really, My Vampire Bride just started as I loved the title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I had the title for ages before I knew what to do with it. Um, um, I tried. Um, making some music because i thought maybe it's you know like a film uh, um, you know uh, a film title and i could do sort of like pretend film music for it i didn't really get very far and so that's an example of something actually that i didn't have any lines to to start off the poem i just had this title and i sat down i tried different things until i found something that worked um so really it was just the title and, and it did come with that sort of idea of tragic um you know, a tragic lost love. Um, um, it's just trying to trying to find a way to do it. And once I'd, I'd written the poem, I wasn't sure, you know, is this funny or is it? <laughs> I mean, obviously it's not, but also it's not quite serious because it's quite melodramatic, you know. And trying to find a way to describe that, I thought, Poe and Hammer. But um, who knows if that's the best <laughs> description. Mm-hmm. It was very metaphorical, when, especially when you consider that tuberculosis or consumption, as they called it back then in the 19th century, was often mistaken for vampirism. Yeah, because it was such a sort of a, a romantic way to die, wasn't it? You fade away and, yeah. And the pallor of the skin that it caused, and it's, I mean, the metaphors were going crazy in that poem. I totally loved it. <laughs> yeah, I must say, I like it. I mean, um and with my own stuff that I write, I always feel guilty saying I like like it. But quite often, you know, like with Alice Rillier or My Vampire Bride, I'll write something, leave it for ages, and then I'll come back to it and read it. And I think, I can't remember writing this. It's almost like it's written by someone else. And that's when I usually decide whether I like it or not, you know. And you mentioned music, um, and you are indeed a musician. Uh, can you tell us a little bit? Uh, about your music, uh, what kind of music you produce, where people can find it? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, everything I've done is is linked on my site, uh, murrayewing.co.uk. Um, I play guitar, and I got interested in recording uh, on the computer, and that led to sort of mucking around with various electronic instruments. So on my site, there's a couple of um, albums of electronic music, I suppose yeah, they're from about ten years ago now. So, um, although I still do music, I, I rarely do anything that fits into something like an album. You know, I did two albums. One's called Space Wreck, which was a sort of tribute to um, this uh, these books I used to read um, when I was a kid. Um, from this, they were called from the uh, Terran Trade Authority, 
uh, which used to just reprint um, great science fiction covers and then have text with them pretending that the this is a, a tour around the universe or showing you different types of spaceships which actually exist. And I always loved the idea of this great big space wreck uh, sort of hanging out in space, just this, like a gothic castle. And so I sort of, uh, with that image in mind, I, I created a load of electronic music. Um, but the most recent thing I did was a sort of Halloween song, which is a completely new thing for me, a song um, called The Laughing Ghost, uh, which is also on my site, where I actually sing, which is <laughs> something I don't often do. <laughs> nice. Also on your on your website, I found a um, self help book that you co-wrote with <laughs> with Edward Deadwit. Um, so I was wondering if I have neighbors outside my home with torches, torches and pitchforks, should I be picking up? Yes, you are a monster. Yes, although <laughs> I, I, I I recommend you should run first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that book was written basically because I, I thought I wanted to publish something on Kindle. And I wanted to try something out, um, which didn't, um, you know, I didn't want to uh, start off with a novel or something which I'd already written. So I wrote that just to have something to publish, really. But I got into it, you know, once I started in the idea of writing um, a self-help book, which tells you how to become a monster, um, I sort of got into the idea, you know. <laughs> nice. Well, I guess um, another question... I'd like to ask here, Murray, that I'm really curious about. Have you ever considered maybe doing a series of audiobooks that not only have your poetry, but backed up by tunes that you yourself come up with, especially for those poems? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I would love to do that. Um, I've tried, and it, I find it it's difficult to do. <laughs> um, I mean, I've tried recording my own poetry, and I guess I, I'm quite self-critical of myself when I, you know, when I hear my voice back. Mm. Um, and and so I thought maybe I should add some music just to drown out my voice. <laughs> but uh, that that um, I don't know that turns it into a huge task, I must say, which is one of the things which um, stops me from doing it. Um, just trying to come up with music that fits a poem. Um, because I tend to come up with things spontaneously, really, it becomes a lot more difficult when I try and, you know, fit two things together or accompany something. I don't know. It's something I definitely would like to do, yeah. Well, you know you have one customer already. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So let me just ask this. Is there any chance maybe we might see Alice at Riley come back into print in some form, maybe as a collection of your poetry? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing that. Um, yeah, it's I, I think I, I don't really know how to do it. <laughs> you know, I uh, think the if thing only is, we had publishers I, here. <laughs> if only. I mean, it, it, because Alistair Rullier is sort of comic, and then My Vampire Bride is sort of half comic. I I don't know. It all doesn't. It doesn't seem to fit in my head as one thing, but maybe it does just because it's my, it's me looking at it, you know, and I think each poem is something too different to go with others. I don't know. Uh, having sat down and read most of what poetry you have on your site today after having read all of it in the past when I discovered <laughs> your site and went crazy, I think it would work very well as a single volume. Uh, that's good to know. I mean, that's the thing. Getting an external view of your own work is just impossible, really, isn't it? But that, that's good to hear, yeah. It's mixing the supernatural with humor and pathos, etc. Yeah, um, yeah. The humor—it's odd. It's something. When I when I started um, wanting to be a writer, my original idea was, you know, I wanted to write fantasy blockbusters, <laughs> and I made two rules to myself. One was no poetry, and the other <laughs> was no humor. <laughs> this, was, this was when I was sixteen, um, and. I think over then, over the years, I've had this process of slowly giving in to those two things, which is what I really wanted to do. <laughs> we all need to break our own rules sometimes then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's this great quote from um, William Gibson, who's uh, yeah, um, author of um, oh, Neuromancer and Neuromancer. so on. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he says the art of uh, the art of becoming a writer is learning to um, learning to put up with your own style. <laughs> you know, learning to see beyond it. I, I can't remember the exact words it is now, but um, he said. Uh, I think the idea is that everyone is sort of horrified by what, by what they produce when they sit down to write, and you've got to learn to look beyond that, you know. Indeed. Okay, um, so is there any other um, work you would like to plug um, before before we wrap up? I want to make sure that, that you get out there. Anything you need to let our listeners know about? Uh, well, at the end, towards the end of last year, I did bring out a, a novel. I self-published a novel called The Fantasy Reader, uh, um, which uh, uh, something I'd had around for a, f- uh, a few years. But it was really, it's really the thing that I like most about uh, that I like most that I have written. Um, it's a story about a, a 14-year-old girl who's not having a great home life, not having a great school life, mm. and she likes nothing more than to escape into reading her favourite. Um, fantasy novels and then one night she happens to go out onto her landing and sees this set of stairs leading up from her landing where there wouldn't normally be them and she follows them up and eventually comes to the sort of fantasy world that she um, loves reading about Um, I guess it's a sort of Alice in Wonderland story really and I only just (laughs) I've never thought of that before (laughs) but uh, it is Um, uh, so that's uh, a, yeah, a novel I've got out, um, you know, ebook and print book. Well, I have to say, I just brought it up on Amazon while you were describing it, and just yeah. looking at the first paragraph along with your description, you've already made a sale. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I hope you like it. <laughs> so there are two sales. <laughs> okay, and um, where can people follow you on social media? Um. Well, I'm I'm very bad at social media, but um, I have got uh, Twitter and Facebook accounts. But probably the best thing to do is to go to my website, which is murrayewing.co.uk, and I've got a contact page there, which has got links to them. And it is an excellent website. It really does have like everything uh, connected, <laughs> connected and easy to find. Um, it, it's one of the better better um, you know author websites I've seen. Uh, thank you very much yeah. <laughs> oh yes <laughs> yeah. thank you for sharing all your work with us Murray yeah. oh, well, I, uh, <laughs> well thank you for bringing me on <laughs> yeah Murray thank you for thank you for being with us and uh, we'd love to have you again on sometime um, the, the next time you have um, another project come out um, you know please yeah. please be in touch um, because <laughs> I, I, I really like enjoy your poetry like uh, my vampire pride was like um, was just beautiful to me. I know it was a little humor and a little dark, and, and I, that's like my thing. <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed that. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of Annabelle Lee. It hit me right in the heart too, in a very good way. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because Alice at Raleigh was 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 the story that um, that was like, oh, we need to have this guy on. Um, you know, and, uh, thank, thankfully for that, it led me to the other one. And so, yeah. yeah, And I'll, I'll also be purchasing your next book too. too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thank you very much, uh, for coming on. Uh, Um, we really appreciate it, especially, especially having to, having to stay up a little late. (laughs) We know, we know across the ocean and we were running, running a little late, but, um, yeah, we really, we really appreciate having you. Yeah, no, it was uh, great to be interviewed. Yeah, thank you. Great. <laughs> great to meet you, Murray. Yeah, and you. Okay, uh, so we're going to go to commercial, and when we're back, we're going to talk a little bit about crossovers, because that's what we do. All right, and we'll be right back. Back. And uh, again, I want to thank Murray Ewing for coming on our show. Um, I was really, really um, impressed with his poetry. Um, England always gives us the best guests. (laughs) It really does. I I think like more than half of our guests have been from from over in that continent. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. 
Yeah. I think they're just really tuned into what we do because I've noticed most of 18 fall production sales come from England. Yeah. And, and, and actually our, our um, uh, a good portion of our listeners are from England also. So, uh, <laughs> maybe we should have been born there yeah. maybe that's the problem I'm just saying if people paid We're me secret Englishmen if people bought enough of my books I'd probably move to England right now <laughs> alright um, so, we, so. We, we've, we've, we've got a, you know we've got like 20 minutes or, or so um, so let's uh, James let's, let's start with you talking about Wonderland and then we'll, we'll just tag sure. along one of my favorite things that keeps popping up and popping up and popping up is this idea that the Jabberwock is an eldritch god. Because this shows up very slightly in Alice at Riley, where Alice notices one of the vaults on Riley, the door has a Jabberwock carved into it. Then we see this show up again in The Ferris of the Mall, which is Sean Taylor's story from Classics Mutilated, where he has an ancient evil Alice operating in an ancient wonderland. But the really interesting thing is one of her main weapons of oppression is the bastard child of the elder gods, quote unquote, which is, of course, the Jabberwock. So this idea skates and weaves through all of this wonderland continuing fiction, which is a really nice... I don't know, nice way to link them all together into one universe with a minimum of headaches. Um, what else is there to say about Wonderland crossovers? Well, I, I I've noticed like I mean you did that great Wonderland um timeline that got got you the job. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, you know there wouldn't be a TVCU crew if not for that Wonderland timeline. I think, um, and uh, you know you did. I mean it was just an excellent way to like um. I like the idea of there being one main Wonderland um, rather rather than saying like every Wonderland story that's slightly different is, you know, not connected or, or they're just, you know, a bazillion Wonderland universes. Yeah. Um, and, and you do an excellent job of showing that, especially over time, you know, um, you know, just like just like on our Earth, of course, of course, um, things are going to change. You know, politics are going to change, you know, governments are going to change, you know, so. Yeah, it's just the most helpful thing is that Wonderland fiction tends to go through phases, which saves my neck so many times. Right. Like right now, everyone who's doing it is really dead set on the fact that Alice, that Wonderland is now in something like our 1930s. Everyone's obsessed with this idea, yeah. which makes it so easy for me to come in and say, okay, it's a really unsettled period because every single book's dealing with revolution, chaos, falling empires. So I can just say, okay, after every series, they're basically in 1930s, but after this happens, everything collapses, and then this rises up, it falls. Plus, it helps that their time isn't on one-to-one with ours. Right. Like, several days can pass there, and then Alice comes back like it's been only two seconds. Right. So, all those together make it really easy to work everything into this one single timeline. And I, and I also like the idea um, that you presented, and you know, other stories have also... Um, um, demonstrated this to to back up the theory is that there's there's more than one Alice, um, you know, the, it's not always the same Alice. Yes, but it's almost always a girl named Alice, which makes sense because it's Wonderland and and uh, you know we don't have to explain why that's logical. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea that started showing up now that. For whatever reason, this one story that was told about them is keeping their collapsing reality together. So they're forcing their whole thing to constantly redo this story in one way or another. Right. It's an interesting idea. In, in the for the TVCU concept, um, you know, all these fairy tale realms are um, kind of like tulpa like dimensions, like created from the psychic energy of people from the so called real world. And uh, so, you know, that kind of fits with that, that, um, yeah. that you know, their, their realms are literally are fictional, 
but made solid. And so they, they, they really do need to like keep the story going and repeating it in order, in order to survive, you know? Yeah. Basically. I think my favorite thing that just happened completely by accident, it's another one of the trends, like an art deco wonderland is that there is this eldritch horror Alice from mm. beyond time, right? This evil alternate Alice from the early days of wonderland. And it shows up so many times it started in the fifties. But it makes my life easier that she's in that story with the Jabberwock. She's in this random poem from the 50s about an ageless ancient Alice trying to get from beyond the mirror to kill us. Right. She's in Warehouse 13. Yep. It makes my life easier. Now, um, the, the Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, um, do you consider that to be the same Wonderland? I need to finish sitting through it because it just completely lost my interest, but most likely it is, yeah. I mean, it fits right in with the Art Deco-ness. What, what's interesting with that is the Alice from that world is also from a, a fictional world. Um, yeah, that's the most interesting thing. Yeah, she's not from the so-called real world. She's from a, a um, Victorian-era world. Um, yeah, that's basically always going to be in the Victorian era um, in our ta- contemporary time, which which is which is um, uh, a neat different uh, a way of looking at it. It's one thing I liked yeah. about Once Upon a Time, and th- and they really made it clear when they met Cruella, when they showed Cruella Deville's origin is like the writer comes to her world and he asks her like, what time period is it? And she's like, well, I don't know. You know, it's <laughs> like she couldn't answer the question of what, when it was, you know. Yeah. Because it was just a 1920s-ish world, you know. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. So basically, like all these different worlds that mirror the uh, the real world are take place in a certain era, but but they're always in that era because time moves differently there. Yeah, and that so that's that's Alice. It comes from a Victorian literature world. What always yeah. what also makes me wonder though about about Wonderland does it have divergences? You know that do lead to other timelines. You know, just like we agree, the Earth can do. Can I mean I'm not sure how the logic, if we can call it that, of Wonderland works. But would that be applicable? The idea that it does diverge. I say yes, because we have to explain the Alice from American Mickey's Alice. Mm. Because the really interesting thing with that one is, that Alice comes from the same Earth that Alice Little does. But she doesn't go to the same Wonderland. Right. She's one of the very few who doesn't. Despite the fact it connects her Earth, not only connects to Charles Dickens, it also connects to the real Alice. Like... She sees a poster that features the real carpenter and the real walrus performing at a circus in her, her real world. And she also finds the real Cheshire cat on a Chinese vase. So it's this curious... I don't know. But she manages to start from the same Earth and go somewhere else that's much darker, much more evil, ruled by eldritch gods. It's like so the, the, it is interesting. It's like a mirror, mirror wonderland. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, could Wonderland have different iterations, just like we see different iterations of Earths? Can is it the same at Wonderland? I've honestly played with the idea that Wonderland is a sort of protection for the Dreamlands. Not mm. part of the Dreamlands, but something to stop people from getting to where the elder gods don't want them. Which is more mm. like what the Wonderland the American McGee Alice ended up in. Yeah. But don't really have much evidence for that yet. Well, then we have the commonality not only of a person named Alice there, but it seems to be something connected to youth that enable younger people specifically to be able to get in these realms. I mean, not only with Alice um, Little with um, Wonderland, but Dorothy Gale with right. you know, Oz. And then we have, if you're a fan of Warren comics like me, you have Peter Hypnos with those bizarre dreamlands he went through in a series that was in the original Eerie published by Warren and what we're getting here the common theme is youth being automatically having access and then we have Randolph Carter saying that in his youth he had easy access to the dreamlands but lost it as time went on 
It's possible. It, it, it's, it's definitely something to look into. It could be something to do with their, um, for the same reason that um, youth are more open to super, the supernatural and in general because, you know, they still believe, you know. Yeah. It's the creativity, you know. It's the creativity may have something to do with that because human creativity could have something to do with creating all these realms. And I like what you mentioned about, like, uh, Wonderland's logic uh, because I, I, I feel like Wonderland does have its own sense of logic. It's just not our logic, but it, but it definitely seems to have rules uh, like its own physics, you know, um, even, even if it is silly. <laughs> but, it, but it, you know... It's, oh! You yeah. know, I just had a thought on how to solve a very long-term problem. Oh, yeah? The Tim Burton movie. Yeah. does not make any chronological sense. Right. Like, she's dressed like she's from the 1860s, but it has to be the 1880s, except she's going to trade with China, so she's indirectly starting the Opium Wars, and that's in the very early 1800s. Right. So what if she's not from the real Earth at all? What if she is from that Victorian, permanently Victorian Earth from Once Upon a Time in Wonderland? But... But would she be this? She would be she to be the same Alice? Probably not. Yeah, that that she's because... yeah she's probably just another Alice. But it, but that does make sense that she would be from that. Especially they're both Disney owned. Um, yeah. that, that she would be from that same Victorian um, era. And to explain because that's all in the so Alice in, in the Alice in Wonderland movie, which is 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 um oddly not the original story which they make clear in the in the movie so it's oddly named um you know it it seems like she's not they make it clear that she's not the real Alice either yeah that she's another Alice except then they kind of decide maybe you are either yeah. way you'll do yeah and i i i think that's the point like they don't care like one in yeah. Wonderland, they don't care. Like, like, oh, you're a blonde girl <laughs> named Alice. Your name is Alice. So you're the Alice, matter. and she's like, no, I'm really not. And like, oh yeah, trust me, you are. <laughs> well, you know, another curious thing that coincides, I would say, with your theory about the tunes being tulpas, Rob, is that a lot of these fairy tale realms, as we call them, do seem to have a tune, a tuneverse counterpart, like right. the Disney versions, which I think is interesting. Right. Could that be a hint? Well, for me, all the Disney Tune versions just line up so nicely with the real thing that I just count it. The first movie is just an alternate retelling of the book, and then all of their different sequels, all of their different comic stories, their little cartoons, their sequel comic, which is fantastic and helps explain the evil ancient Alice, because there's an Alice cult in Wonderland that pre-existed Alice Little. All of it just is beautiful, fits nicely together, and just slips perfectly into the real Wonderland. Especially when you have that sequel show, Adventures in Wonderland, from the 90s, where you have some originals who remember the original Alice, some new characters filling the roles of the originals, and this new Alice that isn't the original, but they accept. So it just all fits beautifully. Everything Disney. Yeah, And yet we... We have seen. I'm so sorry for the rupture, but I was no, just going to quickly say we have seen tune versions of these characters alongside Roger Rabbit in his movies and the others, like Pinocchio. Like uh, I believe we saw some of the Seven Dwarves there. And interesting in the Disney version, it seems like their version of the Seven Dwarves are the only ones that really have names, or maybe the others do, but they weren't mentioned. Well, um, for for Wonderland, I assume that. Um, the cart, the cartoon Wonderland, uh, just like James uh, assumed, is, is is the Wonderland, um, uh, the the same way. Um, for the for the TV C- CU, um, everything happens somewhere, but I've conceded that sometimes um, some things happen more than one place. Um, yeah, and uh, so so when I when I take the like for for the cartoon you multiverse the cartoon crossover encyclopedia i take a different approach where i uh you know have to do a six degrees of roger rabbit um and for 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 that i'm i but i'm still modeling um like wonderland and oz and all those 
almost exactly the same way I am for the TVCU. Um, the the only thing is um, uh, the fairy tale lands um, are, are a little bit different. Um, there's the live action fairy tale land, and then there, which is Once Upon a Time, and then there's the cartoon fairy tale land, uh, which which is the Disney worlds, and then there's also a a hyper time of of the Kingdom Hearts worlds, where yep. So so basically, um, there's a fairy tale land where it all happens on one world, and then there's a fairy tale land where it all happens on different worlds, and I I basically uh, say. Uh, since since there are cartoon versions of um, the DC Comics characters, maybe there was a cartoon crisis, and uh, all those worlds got smushed together into one world, just like the po- pre-crisis and post-crisis. But just like in Hyper Time showed that the pre-crisis world still existed, so too the Kingdom Hearts world still exists, even though there's a um, a combined cartoon universe and fairy tale world. Kingdom Hearts just confuses me because at the end of the first game, all of the worlds were supposed to become one again. And then yeah. when they did the sequel, they just flat out ignored this. Yeah, because they probably just figured it, it it was easier to keep making games if they just ignored that one aspect. Yep. <laughs> it's all about the money, not 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 about how hard we are working to <laughs> keep track of continuity of Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> Or and, they have the equivalent of what happened in the Image Universe. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I what the series was called. So we are just about out of time. Um, so I will leave the. I was looking at the Wonderland page on our website, and uh, so that's about all the time we've got. Um, thanks to all for listening to us. Uh, thanks again to Murray Ewing for coming on the show. Uh, Join us next week. We'll be talking with Peter Rollick, author of Reanimators, among his works. Um, Before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, True Blood, Drink Responsibly. And a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music, Leaf on a Stream. Thanks to all who listened. Remember to subscribe to and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night. (laughs) 